Hello, this is Ashley Chase welcoming you to the Mark Driscoll Podcast. For more content from my dad, Pastor Mark, Senior Pastor here at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona, visit realfaith.com, where you'll find study guides to go along with each sermon series as he preaches verse by verse through books of the Bible, daily devotions, free ebooks, and more. Now grab your Bibles and get ready for today's sermon. Good to see you all. My name is Pastor Mark. I know many of you are new. We're really glad and honored to have you. And we're in the middle of a little sermon series called Worship the King. We tend to go through books of the Bible. Uh, Last year we did Romans and James. In January, we're gonna start Genesis. If you've got a crazy redneck hillbilly family, come back and join us. You'll feel right at home. And uh, what we're doing in the middle is a little sermon series that I've titled uh, Worship the King. And we've looked at how Jesus Christ is alive and well right now in heaven. And he's being worshiped as we speak. And then we looked at how we worship him on the earth to fulfill his prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Today, we're gonna move from heaven to the church to your house. And the big question is, how do we worship at home? And for some of you, this is a new concept. I grew up in a traditional church, not to speak negatively or pejoratively. We love pastors and churches, uh, but I grew up in a very traditional church and uh, I didn't worship at home. We, we, We kind of had this idea that the church was the holy place and the leader was the holy man and that's where you'd find the holy book and you do the holy things and then you go home and that's the unholy place. And, uh, and if that sounds like your house, I'm praying for you. But, uh, but then some months ago, I, I met Jesus and I met Jesus in a Bible teaching church and learned, no, no, you don't just worship God at church, but also at home. And I was reminded of this uh, a couple of years ago here at Trinity Church, there was uh, somebody in our church that they had a neighbor who went to also a very traditional church and said, hey, why don't you come with me to visit our church, just come to church with me. And this person grabbed their spouse and said, we've never really been to another church. We've only seen it done one way. Okay, we'll go. So they showed up and they said, the first thing they noticed was a lot of people were carrying Bibles. They said, that was really interesting because we never really had a Bible. Instead, there was, you know, sort of maybe a Bible or a a reading that was set aside in the pew and you left it at church, but you didn't take the Bible home. You certainly didn't read it for yourself. They said, that was interesting. They said, we really like the band. At their church, they have an organ, uh, which is good for a funeral baseball game, but it's a little, little, little low energy. And they said, we like the band. And then the the person said, well, you know that there's a whole genre of Christian worship music that you can listen to in your car at home and sing along. Mind blown. They're like, really? They'd never heard of this. They started singing in their car and at home as a married couple. They're like, we really like this kind of worship at home thing. And they started praying together and they got a Bible and they started reading it together. And I asked them, I said, how's it going? They said, we had no idea that you could bring church home. I was like, you can't, you could pray at home, you could take communion at home, you can fill up the tub, baptize yourself at home, like you could do, you, you, you could do this. Probably shouldn't have said that, but yeah, like you, you, yeah, you can bring church home. And the question is, well, how do you bring church home? And if we're gonna worship God, how do we worship him not just one day a week, but seven days a week, and not just in his house, but in our house? And that's what we're gonna talk about today. And so we're gonna start by defining worship and we established this, uh, what is worship in Hebrews chapter 13, it's adoration and action. And we'll revisit this from a previous sermon, but just to set up what is worship. And for those of you who are new, let me say that worship isn't something that just Christians do, it's something that humans do. There's someone or something that we all adore and there are things that we do that determine what priorities we have. And so ultimately we wanna be adoring God and having actions that echo God. So uh, 
speaks first of adoration through him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, adoring God. And then action, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So my question to you would be, who or what do you adore? Who or what do you adore? And, and, and then action, where does your time and your energy and your money go? That will determine for you who or what is the center of your life, your highest priority, or to use the language of the Bible, what your God is or who your God is. And so adoration is where we acknowledge the goodness, the greatness, the glory, the grandeur of God. And action is where in addition to declaring God, we do good. And adoration is something that really reveals our heart, who or what we love the most. And then the action shares that love that God has for us and we have for him with others. And what happens is that our adoration is a lot of our internal life and our actions are our external life. And so we wanna be people who say that we want to enjoy all the people and things that God has given us. And we don't want any of them to displace or replace God as our object of adoration or the one for whom we are devoted in action. The point is this, everything that God gives and everyone that God gives is potentially a good gift if it's in the right place. And if you don't worship God, you'll worship someone or something else. You'll worship a person and that's codependency or people pleasing or fear of man. You'll worship your job and become a workaholic. You'll worship your reputation and be totally worried about what everyone thinks of you. Uh, you'll become addicted and you'll worship a substance instead of the savior from substances. And so the point is when we worship God, we're free to enjoy the people and things that God has given us. And so all of life really is an issue of worship. And when it comes to the Bible, the question is, well, where should God's people worship him? And it's kind of interesting as you look at the storyline in the history of the Bible, in the earliest days of worshiping God on the earth, his people worshiped him largely wherever they happened to find themselves and they would build an altar, usually out of stone or whatever materials were found locally. And then a sacrifice would be offered showing that the wage for sin is death and we need God to forgive us to have a relationship with him. So we'll get into this and we jump into the book of Genesis in January. You're gonna see a lot of altars getting built. Well, then as you move forward to the book of Exodus, God's people are away from home and they're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years trying to find their way home. And so their worship of God is something that is consistently moving and changing. So it's portable. So God decrees for them something called a tabernacle. And this is like a portable worship event. This is like a band going on tour or a pop-up shop. Wherever they happen to be, that's where they stop and worship. And it's a tent and it's a mobile system that goes with them. And I just wanna say thank you. We did something like this this week. Uh, we have a number of pastors that we've been working with for years in Mexico, and they've got a pastor's network in these churches. Their pastor's kids love the Lord and love each other. They form this worship band and they go out and play open air concerts and share Jesus. And a lot of churches are still closed and throttled and struggling. And so they go out and they do these open air concerts. And, uh, and you this week paid for a full worship rig for them, sound, all of the equipment, a trailer to store it. And we placed the order this week so that for people who aren't coming to church, church can go to them. So I just wanna say thank you on behalf of those kids. So from Exodus then, God decrees that a temple be built, this massive construction project, massive. Uh, 
And the, the temple gets built and the presence of God is centered in the Holy of Holies at the central location within the temple. And that's where you come to meet with God. That's where heaven and earth connect. That's where worship happens. Well, now if you wanna worship God, it's very formal and you have to travel to a place and you would have to bathe yourself. You'd have to change your clothes. You'd have to sing certain Psalms as you ascended up to the temple, the Mount of Assembly. And depending upon if you were a male, female, Jew, Gentile, there were different levels of access and different degrees of proximity to God's presence. And it was very, very formal and very structured and it was centered in a place. And the temple became the connection point between heaven and earth where people would come to worship God. Well, then Jesus comes and everything changes. And what he says is that his body is now the temple. It's the connecting point between heaven and earth that God has come to the earth. And this is what we celebrate every Christmas season. He is Emmanuel, God with us. So all of a sudden, the God who is worshiped in heaven comes to the earth and he closes that distance between us and God. And this is where Christianity is different than all other religions. All other religions are, how do we go up to God? Christianity is, how does God come down to us? God's not lost, we are. God doesn't need to be found, we do. And he comes as Jesus Christ. And what happens then is we worship through the Son. We don't go to a place, we go to a person. Most religions have a headquarters, we have a head. And so all of a sudden worship transitions to by the Spirit in us through Jesus Christ. And what happens then is Jesus dies on the cross in our place for our sins. And when he dies, something incredible happens. There is this veil in the temple for the Holy of Holies that separates the people of God from the presence of God. And it is torn from top to bottom, from God to us. God literally tears the veil. And it shows that now we don't need to go to God. He's going to come to us. And that the power of the Holy Spirit is not going to be centered in one place, but will be unleashed and released to God's people in any and every place. So then Jesus rises from the dead and he tells us that worship is about to change. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then Jesus goes up and he sends the Holy Spirit down. And so now wherever the Holy Spirit arrives, he's going to take the worship of God from heaven and he's going to bring it to the earth. We looked in the first of the sermons in this series, how in Revelation four and five, right now, God the Father and God the Son are high and exalted, seated on thrones. They're worshiped by divine beings and departed believers. And the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, there's one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't get a throne because he's leading worship around the throne. He's the worshiper and he's the worship leader. And that what's going to happen, Jesus says, wait for him to come down. And when I go up and he comes down, then worship will begin among God's people on the earth. And then the question is, well, where's he gonna show up? Where's the Holy Spirit gonna kickstart, inaugurate, launch, commission the new covenant church of Jesus Christ? And we read this in Acts chapter two. This is the next major movement in church history. And we see that the first Jewish Christians worshiped at home. Worshiped at home, Acts chapter two. Uh, when the day of Pentecost, Jewish holiday, largely Jewish people arrived, there came from where? From heaven. So heaven comes down, Jesus comes down, the Holy Spirit comes down, the kingdom comes down, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like a mighty rushing wind. We looked at how that denotes power, that a person who has the Holy Spirit lives by God's power and it filled the entire house, they're meeting in a house, and divided tongues of fire. We looked at fire is about passion. 
So life in the Spirit, worshiping in the Spirit, it's about power and passion by the Holy Spirit. We still use that language. Those people are on fire. They're super fired up. Here the fire of God appears. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. He is the worshiper and he is the worship leader. And so how do they worship God? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So they're learning the scriptures, fellowship, they're friends, they're loving each other. It's like extended family breaking of bread, reminding themselves that Jesus died in their place for their sins. They're taking the communion meal together in homes and prayers, they're praying for each other. And awe came upon every soul. Everybody's like, this is new life. This is life in the spirit. And many wonders and signs are being done. People are being saved, people are being healed. Incredible, wonderful things are happening. And they were all selling their possessions and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. They're being generous. They're helping one another. They're looking out for one another. And day by day, attending the temple together, those are big meetings like we would do as we come together in church and breaking their bread in homes. That's little meetings like we would do in life groups, praising God, that's worship. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. This is great news. I have such good news to tell you. And that is, this is not just the record of what God used to do, but what God is still doing. Cause he's the same yesterday, today and forever. And he comes down and he fills people. And what ultimately happens is they worship and then others witness their worship and join them and become believers. And it says that God added to their number daily those who were being saved. Such good news to tell you, this year we baptized over 400 people. The Lord is still adding daily to those that are being saved. It's awesome, it's great. And so the Holy Spirit comes down and what kicks this all off in Acts chapter two is Peter, who's a leader, gets up and preaches a sermon. And things get kickstarted with Bible preaching and teaching. I believe that the center of the church is the presence of the Holy Spirit, but the highest priority is the preaching of God's word. That the preaching and teaching of God's word is the way that the Holy Spirit has decided that he is most inclined to show up in power and do significant things. Not only did the Holy Spirit inspire the writing of scripture, he empowers the preaching of scripture, he opens the ears of the hearers to receive new life and to obey the word of God. So all of this kicks off with a sermon. And so the word of God is preached and then the power of God shows up and the people of God are worshiping God. And what happens is as the Holy Spirit comes down, um, worship follows and we see uh, leadership. This is what happens when God's people are together in worship, there's leadership, learning and love. There are those who are leading others. The people are learning. They're like, we're here to learn the Bible and love. They're looking to care for one another and take care of one another. In addition, there is worship, they're praising God. There is also witness, they're sharing God's love with others. And there is wealth, they're taking what they have and they're acknowledging that it belongs to the Lord and they're sharing it with one another out of love and generosity. This is just life in the spirit. These are not things that we do for God. These are things that God does through us. And here we like to say that these are the kinds of things that we don't have to do, but we get to do. We're not doing them for the love of God, we're doing them from the love of God. We're not doing them so that God will accept us, we're doing them because God has already accepted us through Jesus Christ. And so now the Holy Spirit changes our desires and he awakens in us new passions. All of a sudden it's like, you know, I wanna sing to the Lord and I wanna get to know God's people and I wanna share what I have and I wanna learn the Bible and, and, I, and I want some things to change in my life because God, God has changed me. And so this happens in two kinds of meetings, big meetings, small meetings. Big meetings are in the temple courts massive structure, and they would have had large side rooms to meet. This is what we're doing right now as we gather. And then in homes, 
This can include home groups or what we call home life groups and also just your family. And think of your home and your household. And what does it look like not to just worship God here, but to worship God there, not just worship God in his house, but at your house. And part of the reason that we get together is that we worship together and you learn how to worship at your house. And ultimately the goal is that what we do here would be something akin to what you do there. Now, the point is this, God could have come anywhere, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, they're up in heaven, Jesus comes back. I'm sure there's a great party. He conquered sin and death and he rose from the grave. And then it is, okay, we're gonna send the Holy Spirit down. Where? To a, think of it, where would you have chosen? Maybe a temple, maybe a religious institution, maybe a governmental agency, maybe a place with a lot of power, prestige and prominence. Instead, we're going to that house. Here's what's really exciting. The Holy Spirit likes doing house calls. He likes showing up at people's homes. He likes igniting worship and new life in a house. I love that. And it shows us so much about who our God is. The Bible uses a lot of family language to talk about God and our relationship with God. It says that God is a father, that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Jesus says that he's going to the father's house to prepare a place for us. So heaven is like dad's house. It also tells us that we should treat older men like fathers and older women like mothers. And it says that we're brothers and it tells young men to treat young women with, like sisters with purity and with holiness. And the Bible uses this language of family. God is a father. He's always seeking to build a family. And that explains why the Holy Spirit shows up in houses and why Christianity, which is the biggest movement of any sort or kind in the history of the world, it is bilingual, it is multinational, it is powerful because of the presence of God. And it all started at somebody's house. I love that. And, and then the question is, as we are worshiping God, the weird thing is they were first and foremost Jewish people. We got a little clue here in Acts chapter two when it says they were celebrating the Jewish festival of Pentecost. Okay, how many of you are not Jewish? You're not Jewish? Most of us not Jewish. Okay, we're the Gentiles. That's what the Bible calls. I'm, we're Irish, I was O'Driscoll. We're responsible for river dancing. So I apologize on behalf of my people. Uh, we've unleashed a terrible evil on the earth. Leprechauns and river dancing. It's just, it's shameful. Um, but potatoes are good. So, you know, there is hope. So we are the Gentiles, those of us who are non-Jewish. And prior to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, if you wanted to worship the God of the Bible, you had to convert to Judaism. So all of a sudden you've got to learn Hebrew, which is the language of the Old Testament. You got to accept their holidays. You got to change your diet. There's no pork products. Just for a moment, gentlemen, just process the horror of that possibility. <laughs> and it gets worse. You have to get circumcised. How many guys are like, no, that's it. Like, I don't, I, I, you lost me at the ham sandwich. You didn't even need to go further. Um, <laughs> And this is the big debate in the New Testament because the question is, did the Gentiles get to be saved by the spirit or do they need to follow the law? Okay. And if it is follow the law, then here's all the things that they need to do. And if it's the spirit, then Jesus has done all the things that need to be done. If you and I were in their day, we would have had to have converted to Judaism. We would have had to change our diet, our holidays, our culture, our language, 
the question is, well, how did God's people or when and where did God's people start worshiping as Gentiles without fully converting to Judaism? That is in Acts chapter 10. Theologians believe that the New Covenant, New Testament Church of Jesus was launched in Acts 2, largely to Jewish people, and then it included the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. So we'll read that as well. The first Gentile Christians worshiped at home, Acts 10. There was a man named Cornelius. Famous guy, appears eight times in the New Testament. A centurion, a high-ranking military leader. Some people are like, well, Jesus is for the powerless and the powerful. Well, he's for the unknown and the known. Uh, He's for the poor and the rich. Everybody needs Jesus. A devout man who feared God, but he doesn't know who God is. You ever met somebody that are like, I believe in God and I wish I knew him, but I I don't know who he is. If you don't, there are people like this, that God has created them and they know that there's a God, but they don't know who that God is. He feared God along with all his, his household, his family, his house, his extended family. He gave alms generously. This guy is tithing before he's saved. He's like, I don't know who God is and I know there is a God. So I'm gonna pray to that God. and I'm gonna give to that God. And hopefully someday I meet that God and prayed continually to God. So God gives him a vision. And God does supernatural, extraordinary things, sometimes in closed nations or places. People are like, what happens to the people that have never heard about Jesus? The question is, I don't know who's heard. God can do angels, visions, dreams, gets real creative. An angel of God came to him Uh, and said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. God's listening. God's opening your heart and his heart is open toward you. And now send men to Joppa, nearby town and bring Peter. Now you don't know God. There is a guy who does know God. His name is Peter. He's in a nearby town. Go get him, bring him to your house. Cornelius was expecting them. He assumed that this God who gave him a vision was gonna do exactly what he said. And he called together his relatives and close friends. Everybody come over, big party. There's a guy named Peter coming over, gonna tell us who God is. Here's the thing. There are people that you know that don't know God, but if you know God, maybe you're the one to make the introduction, okay? And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. So Peter walks in, but Peter's Jewish and all the people are Gentile, Rot row. And he said to them, you yourselves, here's Peter, know how unlawful it is. The religious people are gonna be very unhappy about this. Oftentimes when you're seeking to do God's will, it's the religious people who get in the way. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Peter's like, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm gonna get in trouble. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Again, Bible preaching is what makes the difference. And the believers from among the circumcised, those are the Jewish people who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So again, in that day, the Jews and the Gentiles, they did not like one another. They did not associate with one another. You didn't go to school together. You didn't eat together. You definitely didn't intermarry. And uh, if there was, some rabbis even taught that if a Gentile mother was birthing a child and in a crisis and you stopped to assist her and preserve her life and the child, you were sinning against God because you're bringing another dirty Gentile into the world. Total contempt, okay? Because the Jews had their rituals and they were clean and the Gentiles didn't abide by them, they were unclean. And when the Holy Spirit shows up, he changes the categories and he determines who's clean and unclean. Now, we had an, we had a, we had an inkling of this recently on earth. 
the, uh, the defiled people, the, the unclean people. We just went through this, right? Six feet, mask, vaccination, everybody stay home. They're, they're all dirty and defiled. We just went through this. For the last 18 months, we were all lepers. You read the New Testament, you're like, I wonder what it was like to be a leper. Now you're like, oh, I know. Yeah, I know. I walk into, you know, I walk into the grocery store and people are running, well, you know, using hand sanitizer. You know, it's just, and, and this was the Jews and the Gentiles because like, we're clean, they're dirty. If we go near them, they'll make us dirty. The answer is no, no, no. You're dirty, they're dirty. Jesus Christ makes you clean. Okay, he makes you clean. And so, um, so Peter walks in and Cornelius is this high-ranking military official in the Roman government, which was a terrible government. But the good news is if you get a leader and people are following them, if that leader starts following Jesus, many of the people following the leader might start following Jesus. So Cornelius is a man of significant influence. So to get Peter to the house, God gives him this vision three times. Don't you love the patience of God? How many of you, God has told you things a few times? First time you're like, nah. <laughs> you need to think about that, Lord. I'm sure <laughs> you probably are gonna edit that. I'll just wait. You know, but God's patient. So he gives the same vision to Peter three times. And that is that by the spirit, not the letter of the law, Jesus Christ is going to save Gentiles and make them members of the family of God. Because here's the big idea. Sometimes God likes people we don't like. Sometimes God loves people we don't love. Sometimes God accepts people that we reject. That's how I became a Christian. How many of you, if, if it was the people who were religious that got to choose who was saved, you wouldn't have made the cut either. And so ultimately, God gives this vision to Cornelius and as well, and his family, that Peter is coming and gonna tell them about Jesus, who God really is. Well, what I love is, it says that Cornelius gathered his household. And the Holy Spirit here falls on the Gentiles. Chapter two of Acts falls on the Jews, here falls on the Gentiles. Showing that we're all saved by the same Lord Jesus, we're all saved by the same power of the Holy Spirit, and we're all saved into the same family of God. And so within this, what I really love about this portrait and picture, this is our family history. How many of you, when you were in school, they made you do kind of your family history or genealogy? Spiritually, those of us who are Gentile Christians, this is the birthday of the church opening up fully and completely to those of us who are Gentiles. And what I love about this as well is that again, the Holy Spirit came to a Jewish home, now he's coming to a Gentile home. And he uses the language of household. So when I prayed about starting the sermon series, I just felt very clearly God spoke to me and he said, worship in heaven, worship in church, worship at home, worship in life. And uh, I was like, okay, Lord, I, I'm not sure about the worship at home. I, I, the rest I kind of, in my mind, I had it sketched out, but that one I wasn't sure. So I got up this week and I was on my knees and I was praying for you and praying for our time together. And the Holy Spirit brought to remembrance a, a little Greek word from the New Testament, oikos, means household. So this sermon is really the explanation of one word in the New Testament, house or household. You're gonna keep reading of it in Acts over and over and over, it keeps coming up. And this idea of household is that God can save individuals, but God often saves whole households. 
He did that in Acts 2. He's doing that here with Cornelius' household in Acts chapter 10. Now, let me explain this to you. We tend to think in terms of family. And this leads to a lot of confusion when your children grow up and become adults. Uh, I've got, we've got five kids, Grace and I both. I have five kids. I, I say I. I didn't, I didn't really birth them, so I, don't, I, I can't take the lion's share of credit. Like I, I watched. And so she birthed five kids, and now we've watched them grow up. Two of our kids are married, one is in college, two are in high school. So the two kids that are married, that means that we now have three families, not one. If you're an adult parent, if you're a parent rather of adult children, here's the big idea. When they get married, they leave their mother and father and they start their own family. They start their own family. And so they get to decide what they wanna do. Right? So the holidays, like, what do, what do you guys wanna do for your family? Once they have kids, they gotta decide where do their kids go to school? Where do they go to church? What do they do? That's their decisions. So, but together, so let's say we all get together for Thanksgiving or Christmas, or let's say, and one of my favorite things is Sundays, we tend to get together for dinner and we all get together and it's Grace and I and our kids that are still you know, under our roof. And then the two married couples, there are three families. And together, the Bible would say that we're a household. And a household is made up of multiple families. Most families where they really err, they think, well, when you get married, you're still part of our family. And then you need to do what your mother and father said. The weirdest example I've ever seen of this, I kid you not, I've had a weird life, but this was one weird day. I, I, met with a, I met with a guy and his dad. The dad was in his 80s, the, kid was, the, guy, the, guy, the son was in his 60s. And uh, they were arguing, they disagreed on some stuff. And the dad in his 80s said, well, the Bible says you need to obey your father. I was like, he's, your son's ready to retire. Like he's, <laughs> he gets the AARP discount at the movies. I feel like he probably gets to make some decisions at some point. <laughs> And what happens is if all you think of is we're one family, then the parents make all the decisions for all the children and grandchildren for all the generations. And they misquote the Bible and they say, you need to obey your mother and father. And, and the word for obeying your mother and father in the context of the Bible, that word for children is little children, not grown children. Right. There reaches a point where you're not, you're not over them, that you're launching them and they get to make their own decisions. But the whole prayer and goal is that you love and serve them, you're available to them, and that they invite you in. If you're forcing your way in, there's a dysfunctional family system. If they're inviting you in, it means that you've got a healthy relationship. Here's what we see with Cornelius. It doesn't say everybody did what he said. What it says is that he was the leader and he invited everybody over and his household came. Household includes married, grown children. It includes extended family, sometimes close friends, relatives. This would be a social connected network of people who love one another, respect one another, and willingly choose to do life together. See, here's the big idea. Wouldn't it be great if God didn't just save you, but all your kids and grandkids, Amen. and all your closest family and your extended family? And, and ultimately, that is what happens with Cornelius. And so God's heart is to save people, but not only to save people. We like to say it here at our church, we open our Bibles to learn, we open our lives to love so that lives and legacies are transformed. Not just you, but your household, everybody who's connected to you. 
And that's what we see with Cornelius. As the storyline of Acts moves forward, we've looked at the launch of the Jewish worship of God, the Gentile worship of God in the Jewish home and in a Gentile home. I wanna give you a couple other case studies where the Holy Spirit comes down and God is worshiped in a home. The first is in a household headed by a female. The second is by a household headed by a male. And so the first is in Acts chapter 16, that God continues to save households to worship at home. So Acts 16, we meet this amazing woman named Lydia. On the Sabbath day, so that's a Saturday, we, and in context, it's Paul, Timothy, Silas, and Luke. This is the history book of the New Testament, the book of Acts, and they, they're traveling. So they went where we supposed there was a place of prayer. They said, we heard that there was a bunch of women getting together for a prayer meeting. So we decided to go see what they were up to. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Here's the leader, Lydia. Lydia, a seller of purple goods, was a worshiper of God. She's trying to worship God, but she doesn't know God. There are people out there that God is drawing them. He's opening their heart and understanding. And then God sends us to instruct them about who Jesus is. The Lord opened what? Her heart. See, a lot of times they think, oh, people are seeking God. Nope, God is seeking people. It doesn't say that she opened her heart, that God opened her heart. Here's what you need to know. Around you are people that God is opening their heart. You say, well, I've talked to him about Jesus and they don't care. Well, just check. Maybe he's started opening their heart. It's so beautiful when God opens someone's heart. Um, I'm just gonna tell you a little story that comes to mind. Uh, there was a young man who uh, was in a house this week of one of our pastors. I'm just tell you a story that comes to mind. Um, his mom got saved here uh, in the last year and baptized. And uh, one of our pastors had some guys over and they were sharing what God's doing in their life. And this young man basically said, um, I'd like to know God. All the other guys were like, awesome. He prayed to receive Christ. And now his mom's gonna baptize him uh, in January. So, you know, you just never know when God opens somebody's heart. How many of you, your heart was closed and hard? People tell you about Jesus and you're like, I don't care. It's like bullets off a rock, nothing penetrates. And then one day God opens your heart and you're like, I love Jesus. Here's the big idea, keep praying for them and wait for God to open their heart. And when he does, take the bold step to talk to them about Jesus. Cause you know what? God can change a heart, God can open a heart, God can soften a heart, God can take out an old heart and he can replace it with a new heart. And so sometimes you're like, they're so far from God. Well, good thing that God's not far from them, okay? And so, and so it says that she's a worshiper of God and God opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, so she gets saved, she gets baptized and her household as well. She urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Lydia is a very successful businesswoman. In that day, purple was the most expensive and the most desired of colors. When our family is taking some trips to Greece, Israel, Tur Turkey, looking at the ancient archeological locations of the New Testament, they said, well, purple dye was the hardest to make and get, so it was the most expensive. What that means is she's a very prominent, successful, affluent businesswoman. And she becomes a rock star in the New Testament. She funds a lot of Paul's ministry. She's very generous. She houses the church at Philippi in her home. She is a great leader, great businesswoman, tremendous woman of God. What we don't ever hear is anything about her husband. It seems like she's single. Now we don't know. Did she never marry? 
Uh, did her husband die? Is she a widow? Uh, was she divorced? We don't know. Uh, was she a single mother? We don't know. What we do know is that she's a godly woman with tremendous influence. And she's got a household around her, largely comprised of other women who look to her as a leader. And they get together for prayer meetings and time together. And once she becomes saved, many others become saved. What I find curious in this is one of the four men who comes to tell her about Jesus is a young man named Timothy. Timothy is a young man who similarly, there is no mention of a father in his life. And in the book of Acts, it says that he had a devout grandma and mom who taught him the scriptures since he was a little kid. But there's no mention of a dad. So Paul adopts him spiritually and calls him my son, Timothy. And, and sometimes what this means is even if you grew up without a dad, you come to church, you get a spiritual dad. You didn't have a mom, you come to church, you get a spiritual mom. You didn't have a brother or a sister, you come to church, you get a spiritual brother or sister. That sometimes the deficits we have in our family are made up by God's family. And that's what happened for Timothy. And so he shows up and he tells these women who God is. And he was a son who didn't seem to have a father. And he's speaking to a woman who doesn't seem to have a husband. The point is this, the Bible teaches in the architecting of family that there's singular headship and plural leadership. This is the way it works in God's family. God the Father is the head, God the Son and God the Spirit submit to his authority. Jesus comes to the earth and he's the head of the church. And then there are plural leaders that lead under him. There's single headship, plural leadership. In our family, uh, Grace and I are the leaders. Grace and I make all, that's my wife, we make all the decisions together, but I'm the head, meaning I take first responsibility and I don't, transfer burdens to her, I lift burdens for her. I wanna love and serve her as Jesus loves and serves me. But if something happened to me, Grace would be the head of our household. I wouldn't be there, so she would assume that position. Somehow with Lydia, she's occupied that position as head of household. The reason I tell you this is because today, many households, there is no husband and father present. And the question is, well, what about the woman? Well, she can love and serve the Lord and have tremendous impact and influence on her household. I wanna encourage you who are single moms. And what we see is that our world is trending in this direction. In 1970, 40% of US households had a mom and dad and kids, 40%. In 1970, when I was born. Today, it's 18%. Today, only 18% of US households have a mom and a dad and kids. That we're seeing an increase in fatherlessness. And let me say that part of my heart is always to lead men, to love men, to encourage men, to exhort men. And you know, my favorite shirt in our little bookstore is more fathers, less government. That's kind of my heart. And so what I believe, I believe that, um, that if a man loves and follows the Lord and does what the Bible says, then his wife and his kids and his grandkids and his household and his legacy are blessed. Yeah. And so a lot, of, a lot of what I say gets misinterpreted and misconstrued and attacked and that's fine. But at the end of the day, if you are a man, I want you to know that, that you have an opportunity to love and lead your family. And it could ring true for generations of impact. And that means the world to me, because I can't wait to get to heaven and see a family reunion with generations of people with your last name who are worshiping Jesus Christ.
But even if you are a woman, you say, well, I'm a single mom or I'm a widow or, or, or I'm single. Guess what? Lydia is a great encouragement to you. She loved the Lord, she succeeded in business, she's a rock star woman of God, she has tremendous influence and things begin to change because she calls a prayer meeting and God shows up. This is the story of my life. My mom was the first believer in our family. Um, she went to a charismatic women's prayer meeting and the Holy Spirit fell and she was filled with the Spirit and she was saved. And my mom was physically healed. And so my mom was the first believer in our family. She was the Lydia, she was the linchpin. And then later on, other members of my family got saved, including me and my dad, my siblings, and now my family is Christian and we love the Lord and we're raising our kids to love and serve the Lord. But it all started with my mom doing like Lydia, getting together at a prayer meeting with some other women, okay? In addition to Lydia, there is also a man who is head of household and he gets saved and the Holy Spirit falls on his household as well. He is the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. So the context is this, there's a gal who is demonized and as a result, she is a clairvoyant. She can predict the future, she sees things, she knows things, but it's all demonic. This poor young girl, she's tormented, she's tormented. And so the demon is cast out, the Holy Spirit comes in and her employer is very angry because sometimes Satan pays the bills. So as a result, those whom the Holy Spirit used to liberate her are then themselves incarcerated. And so what we read is about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. So they're worshiping. You can do church in prison. Isn't that good news? And the prisoners were listening to them like, what's going over in cell A? Like we're all angry and jaded and bitter and making shivs and they're singing hymns over there. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, God shows up. All the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened because our God sets people free. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. I got one job, keep the prisoners in the prison. If they all get out, they're gonna torture me. I'm gonna get this over as soon as possible. How many of you have been to the point where you were thought about taking your own life? You're like, you know what? Life is too painful to continue. That's oftentimes when God shows up and sets you free. Paul cried out uh, with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, we're all here. Nobody left. That's incredible. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Your God saved you, I need your God to save me. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Here's the big idea. You need to believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. Okay? Saved from Satan, saved from death, saved from hell, saved from the wrath of God. Let me say this, God saves you from you. Okay? God saves me from me. We need to be saved from a lot of things and Jesus alone saves. Somebody say, well, what do I need to do? Jesus did everything. He said on the cross, it's finished, just believe in him. You need Jesus, you need Jesus, you need Jesus, you all need Jesus, we all need Jesus, we always need Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, you're saved. And your household. God's like, I'm gonna grab some other people in your family and we're gonna put them on team Jesus too. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him. Here comes another sermon. I always like to point that out. <laughs> and all who were in his house and he was baptized showing the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus in our place for our sins. And if you need to get baptized, let us know. We'd love to baptize you. He and all his family. 
gosh, wouldn't it be great if your family loved Jesus? See, don't give up hope. Don't stop praying and don't stop speaking. Then he brought them into his house and he set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household. It's a big party that he had believed in Jesus. The point is this, the Holy Spirit falls on a Jewish home to commission the New Testament church and the worship of Jesus. The Holy Spirit falls on a Gentile home to add Gentiles to the worship of Jesus and the Christian church. Throughout history, God then sends the Holy Spirit and he falls on the house that was led by a woman, uh, falls on a house led by a man, whole households are saved. And, and let me say that this is so precious to me. I, I love you, I'm your pastor. It's a tremendous honor to teach you God's word, but I, your family is sacred. Here's what I would say to those of you who are single, start worshiping at your house before God gives you a spouse. And then find a spouse who's worshiping God and worship together. Don't wait to meet your spouse to start worshiping your God. You worship God, meet the person who's worshiping God. Hey, we both worship God. We seem like we'd be a good fit. And if you're married, worship God at your home so that when your kids are born, they enter into an atmosphere of worship. If you're a grandparent, worship God at home so when your grandkids come over, they're in the presence of God worshiping. And what we're looking for is relationships that are built and based around the presence of God and the worship of God. I'll give you an example of what this looks like for a household to get saved and serve the Lord. Um, it was right here. It was a couple of weeks ago. Um, on Sunday mornings, the, the, the worship and the production and technology team, they show up very, very early. Me, I show up later. Um, they're the real spiritual ones. And so if you see them, thank them. But I looked over here and as they're setting up, you know, all the technology and the band is practicing and getting ready to lead us in worship, there was a group of young boys over here, 10, 12, 13, 14, maybe years of age. And they're having fun. They're running around, they're doing what boys do. They're having a good time, just having a good time. And then what I noticed was some of their dads were in the booth, some of their dads were in the band and they came early to serve the Lord and worship the Lord with their dads. And then the band started practicing and the boys got together and there was a little group of boys here and they were all raising their hands and they were singing. And they were the only people in the room. So I walked over to the boys. I said, what are you boys doing? They're, like, they're all like, oh, it's really cool. Our dad serves. And so we love getting up early on Sunday and going to church with our dad to serve the Lord. I was like, oh, so tell me what that looks like. My kids is like, well, uh, you know, I told dad, hey, if you're gonna go serve, I'm gonna go serve. I wanna serve with my dad. Okay, so you get up early on your day off and your dad's volunteering and you're volunteering and you jump in your dad's car or truck, your dad buys you breakfast, visits with you, prays with you, you go to church, you serve together and then your dad is leading and while he's leading, you're serving and then you stop and worship with your dad. And then on the way home, you and your dad process and talk. What did you learn today? And what did God show you? And, and, and what did God reveal to you? Wouldn't that be great if every kid had that as their normal experience? Yeah. Well, no, no, I grew up you know, at home, we prayed and we read the Bible and mom and dad love the Lord and I saw them hold hands and worship together and then I'd roll into church. Some of my best memories are going to church with dad and worshiping with my parents and, and yeah, my buddies are all worshipers and we love and serve the Lord. And let me just say that would cure most of our social problems. Yeah. All right, if people were just worshiping, we'd have a lot less problems. And so for these little boys, their normal is a life of worship 
as a household. My whole prayer and goal is that for our kids and our grandkids, normal would be a household of worship. I mean, just, just think of how many kids would benefit from a dad who worshiped God and worshiped with their children. Now, here's the problem. Less people are worshiping at home or at church. And part of the reason that the church exists is to teach you how to worship so you can go worship in your house the way you're taught to worship in God's house. But the problem is worship is in a significant free fall and decline. Uh, this study came out this week, uh, Pew Research, says that in 2007, 78% of Americans identified as Christians. Now we know that they all weren't. If you were here in 2007, not everybody was acting like they were filled with the Holy Spirit. There, you can profess something that you don't possess or practice. But today, 63% of Americans identify as Christians. What that means is every year, we're losing 1% of Americans who identify themselves as Christian. And uh, the Barna Research Group uh, came out this week and said in-person church attendance is 30 to 50% lower than pre-pandemic levels. The pastors that I'm talking to nationally and globally, there is an absolute collapse in worship at home or church. At the beginning of the pandemic, if we can call it that, uh, that ultimately there were people who were worshiping online and then over time, they just stopped doing anything. They were going to church and then they went online and then they went into nothing. And a lot of pastors I talked to, they said, well, we're, we're just looking forward to bouncing back. And now it's been long enough. They're like, it's not gonna happen. I talked to a guy recently and he said, yeah, well, you know, two years ago we were killing it. I can't wait to bounce back. He's like, if it's been two years, you have to deal with reality. Like if my wife didn't come home for two years, <laughs> like, I can't wait for a date night. He's like, I, I think your relationship may have adjusted. <laughs> If she doesn't show up for two years, your relationship is no longer just gonna pick up where it left off. <laughs> We're one of the only churches I know of that's actually grown in the last two years. I mean, it's, it's and, and the thing is this, as things get darker, people need to go deeper. Yeah. What, what, what we need in the world we live in now is not less Bible, yeah. but more. Yes. We don't need less prayer, we need more. Yeah. We don't need less church, we need more. We don't need less worship, we need more. But here's the good news. Generations change when we worship at home. And you've all been lied to, and that is that Christians have the same divorce rates and depression and difficulties as non-Christians. Not true. Christianity is about the Holy Spirit entering a person and changing that person and beginning a change process through that person that lasts for generations. There is a sociologist named Bradford Wilcox. He's one of my personal favorites. He was, and I think he's still at the University of Virginia. He's considered the leading expert on like faith, family, and fatherhood. So every uh, Father's Day, the news outlets come to him as kind of the subject matter expert. What is the state of faith, fatherhood, and family in America? And he's done the biggest data study. He published it some years ago in a book called Soft Patriarchs, New Men. Here's the good idea that I wanna share with you. When a husband and wife worship at church and home, everything changes for the better. The couples that have the highest rate of divorce and the highest marital dissatisfaction are two people who are actively involved in different religions. 
because light and darkness, God and Satan cannot coexist. A house divided falls down, Jesus said, and division is two visions and you can't get any greater division than two gods. The couples that worship at home and church, the couples that worship together stay together. Okay, um, and what Bradford Wilcox determines with his data analysis, that if you worship a church and home, those statistically are the best parents. Lowest abuse of children, highest encouragement, most hugs and kisses, most coaching of little league teams, most volunteering at school, most life-giving environment for the children. In addition, the couple that worships together makes the best spouses. Lowest domestic violence, lowest adultery, lowest divorce, highest marital satisfaction rate. In addition, they make the best families. If you worship together and you add children, statistically, those are the most intact, unified, joyful, loving, healthy family environments. For me, one of my favorite things every week is coming as a family and extended family household to be with our church family. And one of my favorite things is to hold my wife's hand and worship. We're in it together and we worship the Lord together as one. And I believe this is a sign to God that we're, we're inviting the Holy Spirit. I believe it's a sign to the demonic realm that we only worship one God. And I believe it is an example to our children and our grandchildren that you need to marry somebody who's gonna worship God with you. And, and the family that worships together stays together. And so I just wanna encourage you. And I wanna ask you just a couple questions in closing. Number one, who or what needs to exit your home for your household to be a place of worship? If there are certain things in your home, maybe other religious artifacts or bad traditions or misuse or abuse of technology, what needs to go? Or who comes over and they just disrupt the whole environment? Who or what needs to enter your household for it to be an environment of worship? And so I'll give you some practical examples. So um, everybody in your family needs an age appropriate Bible. And if you don't know what that is, just go to realfaith.com. There's a reading list and there's age-appropriate Bibles. Our kids always had an age-appropriate Bible. And if you need one, we'll give you one. We give away Bibles to kids all the time. It's one of our favorite things to do. In addition, mom and dad need a good Bible. I recommend the ESV study Bible. Everybody needs a good Bible. It's Christmas time. Buy them a Bible, okay? My whole life changed when Grace bought me a Bible. I started reading it and that's where everything started to change for me. In addition, what routines look like? And so, for example, when our kids were little, we had a bedtime routine. And that was Grace would make them sleepy time tea. It's not in the Bible, but it's a good idea. It helps you know, <laughs> talk the kids in. And we had a little bedtime routine where uh, we'd read the kids' Bible together. I would sing with the kids. I have a terrible voice, but they were little. They didn't know. We'd sing together. And then I would pray over them to tuck them in because I wanted them to go to sleep in an atmosphere of worship in the presence of God. Because sometimes kids have night terrors, they have a hard time sleeping. And uh, with my girls, they wanted me to wrap them up like a burrito. And they, that was tuck all the covers in, so they're just like this. And then I kiss them on the head, tell them I love them. And the boys, they're free range. No tucking in like a burrito. <laughs> they're like, I need a little space. Um, we, had bed, we had bedtime routines, we had dinner routines. We didn't watch dinner around the television. We'd sit at the table, turn the phones off. I had a Bible there. We'd, hey, what'd you guys learn this week? What's God showing you? How can we pray for you? Sometimes we're just joking and having fun. And sometimes it got real deep and serious. The question this week, we had dinner together with the kids that are still on the roof. What has God showed you or taught you this year? 
and they just spoke. And what it did, by opening their mouth, they were opening their heart so I could pray for them. Uh, what does it look like to put worship on in the car? What does it look like to put worship on in the home and sing together as a family? What does it look like to just stop and pray for each other? What does worship look like in your day, in your routine, in your family, in your household? And uh, two things I'll close with. Number one, uh, ministry and worship starts at home. Oftentimes what happens is people come to church and they're like, well, I'd like to lead. Well, are, how's your family? How's your household? If it's not good at your house, that's your first priority. Right, I mean, I, I just, I love pastors and their families, but I tell them all the time, like God's house is your second priority. Your house is your first priority. And if your wife and kids aren't getting the first and best of your time and energy, then you need to make some adjustments. Secondly, parenting is pastoring. If you are a parent, you're doing pastoral work. I'll close with this story. Some years ago, there was this really adorable little girl. She came to church, she's wearing a little dress. She's got her hair all done up. She's got a little kid's vowel. She's so cute. And she came up and she gave me a picture she drew of me preaching. I had a huge Bible and a huge head. I mean, I'm not kidding you. Like 60% of the picture was my head. My I was like, this is like Shrek for Jesus. I had such a huge head and I had a huge Bible. She says, you Pastor Mark. I was like, I could tell. And I looked at her and I said, you are so cute. I said, I am so glad I get to be your pastor. And she crinkled up her nose. She looked at me and said, you're not my pastor. My first thought was, oh no, she Googled me. And... I said, what do you mean, honey? She said, well, my mom and dad said they were my pastors. I said, oh, what do you mean, honey? She said, well, they, they told me if I need prayer for anything to tell them, they'll pray for me. And they said that they would teach me the Bible and if I have any questions, just ask. And they said, and we sing together. And so my mom and dad said, they're my pastors. Answer, yes. praise God, yes. praise God. God is worshiped in heaven. God is worshiped in church. I'm asking you that God would be worshiped in your home. Father, thank you for an opportunity to open the scriptures and to spend some time together. And God, I just pray for encouragement. I pray that this would not be a have to, but a get to for your people. And God, I pray for those who are single, that they would marry someone who worships the Lord with them. For those who are married, that they would worship the Lord together. For children, that they would grow up in homes where mom and dad worship the Lord together. And God, we pray that this faith would ring for generations and that for these dear people who have given me the honor of teaching today, that there would be a massive family reunion in heaven where lots of people are worshiping together as the family of God made up of families in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed today's sermon. If you want to be a part of getting more Bible teaching out across the world, visit realfaith.com donate. And for more content like this, visit realfaith.com. Thanks for listening. And remember, it's all about Jesus.